Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am your host, Anthony Caldellas. So the odds are, if you're listening to this podcast soon after I posted it in late March 2020, that you are living in a country that has imposed a shutdown of most public activities and large gatherings. And uh, you are either someone who, uh, like myself, can work from home, at least for a certain amount of time. Uh, But if you're not, um, if you have to go into work, the odds are that you are performing a service that is essential for the rest of us, um, especially if you are in any of the medical fields. Um, and it's not something that you would choose to do under these circumstances. Um, so we all salute you and thank you for that and hope that this passes soon. It is one of these rare events in which the whole of humanity faces a common threat. And moreover, where that threat is not immediately apparent to most of us, uh, but is something that is, um, is known through science, but also whose effects, the, the worst of its effects, um, are something that we project out into the future, uh, be it weeks or months. Um, it's actually been interesting to see how societies try to wrap their head around doing something uh, that seems extreme right now in order to prevent something terrible from happening a few months down the road. Um, I say this is interesting because collectively we face even bigger threats that operate on much larger timescales. So let's see if uh, we manage to pull it together enough uh, to be able to recognize those um, uh, as well. It is so terribly important to be able to see the big picture um, and not to limit our field of vision to what is immediately apparent in front of us. Uh, but to what we can reasonably deduce uh, uh, through science and all of the data available to us. Now, I hope in the coming weeks to um, put together some uh, podcast episodes that uh, deal indirectly with our current situation, uh, but looking at it through a Byzantine lens. Um, and I've, I've contacted some, um, some of my, uh, my friends to put those together, and I'm working on those right now. Until that happens, uh, it's, uh, this is a great time to be listening to podcasts, uh, since many of us have more time at home. Um, and so I have some interesting episodes coming up. Um, today's is, uh, again, another big picture um, uh, look at comparative empires, so comparing Uh, Carolingian and Byzantine practices of empire. And my contact on the Carolingian side is Professor Jennifer Davis, who is Professor of History at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. And she's written an excellent book on Charlemagne's practices, um, or practice of empire, sorry. It's important, actually, that the meaning of that term comes up during our discussion. So why do I think that discussing practices of empire is first important, but also Um, a big-picture kind of uh, question. Um, And that is because in Byzantine studies, the terms empire and emperor have become kind of part of the wallpaper of the field. Um, We use them so often, um, those two terms, that they're just kind of part of the way in which we, the water in which we swim, and so pick your metaphor. Um, And they really, in a sense, enclose the horizons of what's thinkable. Um, and it's, as far as I know, that the terms empire and emperor have never been systematically studied um, in Byzantine studies. 
Um, we've never come to a full account of why we use them. No one asks that question. It just seems to be obvious. And whenever we're asking some, whenever we're saying something so frequently that seems so obvious and is unquestioned, that is precisely when we need to question it and interrogate it and see what it's based on. Well, as it happens, I've come to believe that those terms are problematic. Uh, I'm not saying that we should stop using them right now. Um, they're very conventional, and unless we find some uh, plausible al alternatives, uh, merely switching them out would create confusion. However, um, it's important to recognize that the way in which we use the terms empire and emperor has very little to do with a flourishing discussion that's taking place among historians in other fields and in political science about uh, the empire in world history and about the, the sociology and ecology and, and uh, economies of empires. Byzantium is largely absent from those discussions. There are a few exceptions, but largely absent in part because we use the, term, um, the terms in very problematic ways. So I'll briefly explain what I think the problem is through a, a quick distinction. Um, and then you'll be able to follow the rest of the conversa my conversation with, um, with Jennifer. So there are two ways in which we can call a state an empire. And the one that's followed in, in Byzantine studies has largely to do with the philology of the titles of monarchs. Um, and as the Byzantine emperor was the linear descendant institutionally from the ancient Roman emperors, um, and because there was a... Um, controversy in the Middle Ages about who could use what title and what those titles meant. Um, and because sometimes states are called empires because their monarchs, or at the point where their monarchs claim the title emperor or imperator or in any version, um, the use of the term tends to follow the title. That is a very traditional approach. I think it's, it's, it's time has come, it's outdated, it doesn't help us answer more important historical questions. In the body of scholarship that has emerged about empire and the comparative study of empire these days, empire means something different. It's used in a very different sense. An empire is roughly a state that um, has largely, usually through military conquest, um, absorbed uh, incorporated, annexed, just conquered a uh, wide variety or a diversity of different ethnic groups or um, ethno-religious groups or polities or pre-existing states or tribes or whatever, you call it whatever you will, and then rules them in a way that reflects the perception of those underlying differences. So in other words, empires are understood in this distinct, in this way as kind of uh, like the polar opposites of nation-states. Um, th that's, not, that's not always true, and there are lots of exceptions to that. Um, but it, the, the important point is that it has nothing to do uh, with the, either the, the nature of the regime. Is it a monarchy? Is it a republic? Is it a democracy? All of those types of regimes can have empires, um, and certainly nothing to do with the philology of royal titles. It has to do with the way in which difference, whether it's ethnic or political or national, whatever, is maintained and forced or obliterated through policies uh, in the act of governing um, such a diverse state uh, that emerges usually after conquest. In my view, in this sense, this is the sense in which most empires are discussed today, 
Byzantium was rarely an empire. Uh, it was a, most of the time it was a different sort of thing. Um, but for the purposes of this discussion, in order to compare um, the Carolingian and Byzantine practice of empire, um, the comments that I'll be making in this discussion focus mostly um, on Byzantium in the late 10th and 11th century, uh, when it actually came much closer to being an empire than at any other time in its history um, after a number of, of conquests. And I think that in order for us to refine and to hone our understanding of the degree to which Byzantium was an empire, or the moments in which it was imperial, or the kinds of relationships that it developed that were imperial, as opposed to other kinds of relationships that it had and power structures that it maintained that were non-imperial, I think it's very important to engage in conversations um, with experts um, who write about other em empires at the same time or whatever, and to, to reach across the, the aisle, as it were, um, from um, Eastern to Western Europe, um, and to try to rub these things together and see what they look like. And Jennifer uh, Davis is an excellent person to do that. Her, I strongly recommend her book on how uh, the instruments by which Charlemagne practiced empire um, for decades before it kind of settled down into a more steady state, um, at which point he, he ruled it. Um, so here's my conversation with Jennifer Davis. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. So it does appear that our fields, um, ancient, medieval, modern history even, are going through a, an imperial phase, right? So we're all talking yes. about empire. Right. I've even uh, seen the expression, the imperial turn, mm -hmm. um, as something that's happened, oh, in the past you know, 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't we start with some working definitions of empire? What do we, we mean when we say that? So. As a system of classifying states, what characteristics does the term empire uh, pick out? Uh, like, let's start with you. So, um, for me, d despite this this interest in empire that you just mentioned, uh, it's not the most common framework that Carolingian historians use. So, for the specialists in my field, um, and there are really good reasons for that. Actually. Um, the Carolingian polity is not an empire for much of the time, and um, for the majority of its history, it's a, it's a grouping of kingdoms. There is some recognition of imperial structure even after the, the Treaty of Verdun in 843, which really split uh, Charlemagne's empire, which is its greatest extent, into pieces. But on the whole, it's much more often a series of kingdoms, and that royal title is really deeply important for the, the Carolingians as opposed to an imperial title. So in some respects, while the Carolingianists have been part of this sort of imperial movement, imperial turn, if we want to call it that, um, and I'm thinking about something like uh, my colleague Eric Goldberg's book, Struggle for Empire, about Louis the German, um, it's not our most common framework. So for me, that using that, that title and using that concept, what I was trying to do was to sort of underline a point about Charlemagne in particular and about, I think, sort of two things about his polity that I thought were important and that recent uh, literature maybe hadn't paid as much attention to as, as it might. Um, and that really was the scale um, that because those conquests under Charlemagne were so fast, 
you have almost a doubling of territory under Carolingian control in about 20 years. And as a political historian, that really struck me as a problem that needed to be thought about, what, what that meant. Um, and then the other sort of, and as the consequence of that, of course, is this incorporation of all these sort of different peoples into a Carolingian entity. Um, and what that meant and that, what kind of challenge that posed politically because um, I came to feel that that was sort of the, not the, not obviously not the only important factor, but a really key shaping factor to understand how Charlemagne ruled, which was the question I was interested in getting at. Right. So I'm sort of talking around your question, but I think that to some extent, you know, so when I came to trying to define empire, it was those two points that I was really leading with, the scale and the combination of peoples. Right. Uh, so I, I just want to explicitly disaggregate mm-hmm. two potential definitions of empire yep. and you alluded to, to both of them in, mm-hmm. in what you just said. So the one is a definition that tends to follow the titles that right. monarchs use yep. and that's a very traditional one mm-hmm. in medieval and in Byzantine studies sure. and especially in the case of the of Charlemagne because mm-hmm. of the sort of you know l- looming right. innovation right, right yep. of being claimed mm-hmm. as emperor in Augustus and so forth. Yep. So that's the one. Um, it's like, well, what does the monarch claim in the title? And we try to understand that through like philology or theology mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the other model is one, let's just call it more like political science oriented, which mm-hmm. just has to do with the, the relationship between the state authorities, or whatever kind of central authority there is, and territories, provinces, the diversity, you have ethnic groups being ruled. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a state that comes about through, uh, it's a diverse, it's an internally diverse state that comes about through conquest. And in the, in the political science literature, that is independent of the title. Mm-hmm. You could have democracies and republics, right, yes. with empires like ancient Rome. Right, sure. And so I, I understood your book to be more about the second Absolutely. than the first. Yeah, definitely. All right. Right. Yeah, that's what I liked about it, because I'm tired of titles. Right, and I, I think that that's part of the reason why there's been less interest in Carolingian studies recently about empire, because I think that there's sort of been a perception that we got as far as we could go with that work yeah. on the title itself. Um, as well as, it's been argued by me, but not just by me, that the Charlemagne's imperial coronation in 800, while it may be a date that a lot of people know, from a Carolingian perspective was not that big a deal. Yes. Um, so, yes, uh, absolutely for me, talking about empire was talking about it as, as a, a form of rulership and a way of a reflection of the, the territory and the sort of political geography of the Carolingian world, not about the imperial title itself. Yeah, and you show in the book many, in many different ways the continuities that sort of bypassed 800 Sure. Without right. a blink, like mm-hmm. okay, to just carry on doing whatever. Yep. Um, yep. And and I should say that in Byzantine studies, uh, we haven't yet even reached that point. Mm-hmm. That transition. Well, I mean, I tried recently in a book uh, a couple of years ago. Um, that is the 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 fixation with empire has been overwhelmingly on titles, and you know precisely because Byzantium is the sort of direct continuation of the ancient Roman Empire. Right. Yeah. The the word just carries on. Sure. Right. Even though there's no corresponding uh, word in, in Byzantine Greek, the title of the quote, quote person we call emperor is Vasilevs, which means king, really. Right. Um, and there's no term for empire. 
Uh, but anyway, w- that is empire mm-hmm. in the in the political science term that we right. just said, right? Right. So if we study empires as um, states that become internally complex um, precisely through processes of conquest that create ethnic religious diversity, and then the imperialists, as it were, they have to manage that diversity somehow, either by um, yeah, highlighting it and maintaining it, mm-hmm. or trying to eradicate it. Um, so, um, what in the uh, in the Frankish case are the ideological justifications for that kind of conquest? Because that tends to drive the processes that come afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, how did Charlemagne justify his doubling of the extent of his empire? Mm-hmm. So, uh, my answer to that is it really depends on where we're talking about. Um, I don't think that the um, reasons for conquest are consistent. Uh, so um, there are cases of opportunism, um, which I think uh, northern Spain is, is a good example of that, of being approached. And then, of course, it goes down there. It goes very badly, right? The root, right that's right. the root of the, what's going to become the, the Battle of Roncesvalles. What was the Battle of Roncesvalles becomes the, the legend that's in the Song of Roland. Um, you know, not Charlemagne's best moment there. Uh, but that kind of response, I think, is really opportunistic there. Um, on the other hand, there are um, conquests that are quite clearly uh, conscious choices. Um, and... Uh, but I think undertaken for a sort of a range of reasons depending on which one we're talking about. So something like Saxony, which is brutal uh, and takes 30-some years, um, there, there, I think that's the, the one where we really see a clear religious element. Uh, in Spain, it, it's not, it, there has been an attempt to argue that it was religiously motivated, but I, I'm, not, I'm not really convinced by that one. Um, I think Saxony is where there really is this clear religious motiv- motivation. Um, but as well as just this real commitment to grinding them into submission, and it was it was pretty grinding. Now, I think where we get a difficulty in the Carolingian case is, is there an overall sort of conscious plan here? Right. And there's been some, there's been work on that. I think the one, an older idea used to be that there was sort of an attempt to reincorporate territories that had been um, under Merovingian overlordship. Um, and I think you can see aspects of that more under Charlemagne's father, Pippin, than under Charlemagne himself. Um, I think the really, the really important interpretive argument there that we all need to reckon with is uh, that of the late Tim Reuter, um, who wrote a really important study about um, plunder uh, and tribute in the Carolingian world and basically argued that there's sort of this dynamic of, of conquest. And when that stops working, when you sort of reach the point where um, it's no longer worth it for the aristocracy uh, because the spoils aren't there anymore, that it leads to real political turmoil. Um, And then that's where you get a real reworking of the empire. And I think there's a lot to that argument, but I don't find it in the end fully convincing, partly because of the timing of the conquests and its political and economic implications. So the argument that I've tried to develop is that... um, the, there, there certainly are moments of quite clear um, decision-making, and I think the, the decision to stop conquering is very intentional uh, because the last sort of major conquest, if you will, is the Avars in the 790s, 
and that's more of in certain areas more of an overlordship than a direct incorporation the way that you see for example in neighboring Bavaria certainly in Italy um, so I think there's a real choice that this has gotten big enough but it doesn't seem to me that there was a sort of uh, conscious let's go build an empire idea right um, yeah. the argument about land and rewarding the aristocracy yeah. it reminds me of a lot of the, uh, the ancient Roman Empire mm-hmm. in the sense that so there are arguments that, uh, like, why didn't the German, uh, the, the Romans com- conquer yeah. all the Germans, yeah. right? And yep. it's, or even Northern England. Like, mm-hmm. why did they stop where they stopped? Mm-hmm. Um, and the argument is often that uh, that is the limit of the territories whose conquest would be economically profitable. Mm-hmm. Like, if you go further into the forests of Germany right. or into yep. Scotland, yep. you're just wasting resources for little uh-huh. return. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah. Now, in the Byzantine cases, um, so Byzantium didn't, mm, its real imperialistic moment is in the late 10th and 11th centuries. Mm-hmm. That's when it doubled its territory. Right. Um, it had its own brutal war against the uh, Bulgarians. That was yep. for 35 years. Yep. Uh, one yep. emperor again, Basil II. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there were also lots of acquisitions in the Caucasus, especially Armenia, Georgians, and northern Syria, and so on. Mm-hmm. And these territories are all so different from each other, it's very yeah. difficult to ascribe yeah. them to one particular mm-hmm. motivating, uh, uh, yep. for, other than they just happen to have the strongest armies <laughs> at that moment. Right, right, um, yeah, right. And, yeah, it's really tough. But it's interesting what you said about the Merovingians, bec- uh, like looking back to Merovingian uh-huh. times. right. Because for the Byzantine Empire, which is the Roman Empire, there's always a memory of, well, everything as far as we can see right. was once was, yeah. Roman. Mm-hmm. And so there's always this idea that uh, it's, it's a reclamation of territories that have been usurped. Right. right. Uh, yeah, yeah they, and they I, I, I've sort of pushed back against that a little bit on the, in the Frankish side because um, not just because Charlemagne conquered a bunch of territory that had never been Merovingian. Um, but because the way that he handled some of the territory was so distinct, particularly in the interactions with Italy, um, right. where there were precedents for Carolingian involvement, and he just, you know, it, it completely ignores them. He did his own thing there. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, though what I do think one, you know, I think there are strategies of the conquest, but I think they just, I guess they vary, right? So something like Bavaria, it's ruled by his cousin, um, and somebody who's sophisticated and somebody who's a threat. And I think that was, I think there's a personal ill element there. And I think there's right. a sort of weeding of the family line going on absolutely there. Whereas something like Saxony, I just don't buy the idea that it's economically profitable, profitable as well as it was just such a massive commitment of time and energy and resources from the Franks. Um, so there's, you know, there's something else going on there. That's sort of a... In slaves, did they, did they take slaves from Saxony? They must have, right? <laughs> So that, that becomes a, a, a kind of controversial uh, issue. Um, so the most recent uh, book on uh, slavery in the early medieval world, Alice Rio, Slavery After Rome, has basically really made the argument that slavery as such is not a major factor and that what we've, we're seeing is a range of what she calls forms of unfreedom. Um, that you, where the Carolingians fit on that slow transition from slavery to serfdom has always been a contested right. issue and I, I think Alice's work has sort of really been trying to argue that the Carolingians is uh, are not a fixed point on that kind of 
scale that it's there's a range of different possible forms of dependence. Um, on the other hand, it's certainly it has been. Other scholars have argued that the, there is a significant uh, importance of slavery. So um, I think most notable among them, my my teacher, uh, Mike McCormick, um, whose uh, sort of magisterial origins of the European economy ends with this argument that going back to Peran, that you right, know yeah. he, Peran is right that without Muhammad, Charlemagne would have been conceivable. Mike turns that on the head basically by saying that it's this slave trade between the Carolingians and the Caliphate that makes some of the Carolingian political sophistication, Carolingian Renaissance possible. So somebody like Mike absolutely thinks it's that's a major factor. There's been a lot of contestation though. So I mean, I guess I would say that I don't think that there's any, um, there, there is no party line among Carolingian historians on the issue of slavery. Sure, ultimately we would need to have their balance books. Like, so, you know, how much did they actually make from the slave trade? And I think one of the other, the other things that's difficult there is um, it's really hard to see um, royal control over a slave trade, um, which if this is happening in Saxony, I find it hard to imagine that Charlemagne's wouldn't have had his fingers in that. Um, this is a region that they're paying a lot of attention to, and that's the frontier. They're really worried about that eastern frontier. But it's really hard to see any uh, political intervention. So for me personally, I just find, I find the question difficult. Um, I would expect if um, there was extensive taking of slaves going on in, in Saxony to hear a little bit more about it in the kinds of sources that are coming out of Charlemagne's court, which we do have a reasonable amount of. Um, so that's that to me is part of the reason why I find that a very difficult question to, to give a good answer to. Yeah, there's another explanation that some historians resort to, um, which is the, the the army is this kind of use it or lose it um, institution or or use it or it will turn against you, right? Mm -hmm. So when they're talking about like Attila and so on, so these are people who through right. some circumstance find themselves, you know, riding this enormous army and if they don't reward it through, or use it through campaigns, mm -hmm. it will turn on them and find someone who will. Right. Um, now in the, this is normally used for like step empires, right. that kind of explanation. Yep. But I think it actually does work in some cases for Byzantium. Mm -hmm. um, the emperors would often face armed rebellions mm -hmm. and like what Basil II did with Bulgaria I think was in part mm -hmm. staying with the army right. to make sure it doesn't do that and using it against yeah. someone other than himself so, sure right it, yep. was that a conceivable factor in the Carolingian case the difficulty there is that the Carolingians have no standing army and that's one of the again reasons right. why they're often left out of the discussion about empire. That's one of the things that empires tend to have, right? They're, they collect taxes, uh, direct taxes, and they have a standing army. And the Carolingians have neither. Uh, so for Charlemagne, the problem's really a little different in that he needs to convince the aristocracy to show up with their men oh, every right. time, again <laughs> and again and again. Uh, come on, guys. Right. And, you know, okay, maybe... Uh, in certain cases, there, there's an easy reward dangled in front of them, but that's that's one of the things that I sort of run into difficulty with Reuters interpretation, uh, despite the the quality of that article, which has really been a seminal one in my field, um, is that 
for a lot of these campaigns, there is, it's hard to see what that immediate reward is. Not that there wasn't one eventually in Saxony, but it was a lot of work for that. And it's, it's not like there was, there, yes, there's land given out, but it's not, it's not like there's full-scale appropriation of the conquered populations, um, as well as, you know, it's not always land that would be better than what they had elsewhere. Now, Italy, on the other hand, you know, everybody wants a nice estate in Italy, but the Franks don't really want to do this. There's, I think there, it's subtle, but I think there is evidence that the Franks do not want to invade Italy. And it's really an act of will for Charlemagne to get them to do it. I think something like that does buy him a certain amount of credibility then in trying to convince uh, the aristocracy that he, you know, maybe has, there's a, a point here in some of the sort of crazy things he wants them to do. Um, but, I mean, again, that's sort of appeasing the army. I think his problem is is sort of the opposite one in that he's got to get a very powerful, independent, landed aristocracy who most of the time are just going to do what they want to do he's got to convince them that doing what he wants them to do is worthwhile okay so let me flip that um, explanation on its head and -hmm. suggest the opposite one okay Uh, that is there are cases where simply in order to be the chief or the emperor in this case you need to be extracting some kind of either um, goods or, or money or taxes or whatever or services from the people of whom you are the, the chiefer mm-hmm. if, if there's nothing that you can get them to do mm-hmm. you're basically irrelevant right and so forcing them into or you know persuading you said it persuading them but maybe you know kind of like getting them to go along in these wars is reminding them that he's in charge like that's the only way he's got right so maybe it's this process mm-hmm. of like well what how else am I going to demonstrate my authority and impose my will on them so, you know, I do think for, in the Frankish case, um, we are dealing with a very powerful aristocracy to the point that um, I think uh, people who might argue with me, Carolingian historians might argue with me, would argue that, you know, the aristocr- aristocrats don't really work for Charlemagne. They're not really agents. They're just doing their own thing. And wow. I think that that's an overstatement yeah. because I think that we can see ways in which there are rewards for working for the king and you get to the point where power on a certain scale only goes through the royal the royal court but so so i guess I, you know coming out of this is from a carolingian the question i feel like i have to answer is the other one is is how you rein in the aristocracy how you convince them that you want to work they want to work with kings um but also this sort of issue where how you you have to get them to to, to fight to sort of show that you're doing something to, to demonstrate charlemagne's power I think again that's part that's part of the difficulty is the conquests wind down mid 790s. Charlemagne dies in 814. There's uh, there's some military action in that you right. know roughly 20 year period ish, yeah. um, but not a huge amount. And it's that 20 year period where a lot of what um, Charlemagne gets remembered for happens. So. In this mm. period in which he is not conquering, uh, he has enough political support nonetheless. So, um, and interestingly, the revolts against Charlemagne, the last one's also in the early 790s. So as far as we can tell from our sources, 
that that final two decades of his reign where he's doing a lot politically that's interesting and that's different for the Franks. And I think that that is also part of what I was sort of getting at with the, the insisting on the imperial rather than simply royal, that there's a, there's a difference here in what he's doing. That's coming in a period where he's not conquering. Okay. And he's got enough political capital that that works. And the, the real evidence of the pushback is... The, the violent pushbacks earlier. Now you have okay. all kinds of you know resistance in the form of people who you know don't really want to do what they're told and are recalcitrant and slow and don't fulfill orders. And I mean you have all kinds of that kind of thing. But the actual revolts against Charlemagne, the signs I think of the real questioning of his political judgment, the majority of that evidence is earlier. Okay, so you're saying that for a significant part of his reign, that is toward the end, he's clearly. Um, demonstrating and exercising an overarching authority and getting projects done and so on without having to resort to dragging the aristocracy into war. It, that seem, yes, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. definitely, to me, seems to be the case. And again, you know, um, where my field is going, the older literature very much saw the, the sort of uh, Charlemagne's effort to build a, a sort of functioning administration. And there was a lot of pulling back from that because there's been a real recognition that a lot of the expectations um, in that literature were a little anachronistic. They were too bureaucratic. That's not how early medieval politics actually worked. And there was a real change to looking at politics on a regional level, what's going on on the ground. And that was a really productive change for my field. Um, I do think, though, that in, in certain respects, failing to that work, um, as useful as it's been, we also need, we do need to look at that bigger picture, and we do need to try to put all the different regions together. So I do think that there is a fairly um, uh, important sort of imperial superstructure, but there's a huge amount of, of aristocratic power that is independent of, of Charlemagne and anything that he's doing. And I think that's absolutely a key uh, factor to, to recognize. So yeah, I mean, so for me, it's always got to be, how do you get the aristocracy to go along with this? Okay, well, I wanted to talk about the aristocracy specifically because mm -hmm. there's some crucial differences here between the Frankish realm and Yeah, I think that's Byzantium. one place where, yeah, we really see very extensive differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but first, I mean, yeah. we'll come to that. But first, I just wanted to ask about some, some broader conceptual issues. Mm -hmm. um, so when the conquests are all done by the 790s, um, is there a sort of conceptual distinction between the more sort of core areas of a Frankish realm, a Francia or something, versus an imperial periphery that has been mm -hmm. conquered. Um, and beyond sort of conceptual distinctions, were there institutional uh, differences in the way in which they were governed and approached? So, yeah, I mean, that's, of course, one of those key co imperial questions. And um, mm -hmm. the colleague of mine, Stefan Patzolt, uh, just, um, just reading now an article I think he published just last year um, about why that model of imperial periphery doesn't work in the Carolingian period. Um, so still, still finishing that, but I think it's an interesting uh, uh, approach. Um, and I, Stefan's primary claim there is that you can't really distinguish an imperial aristocracy, a central imperial aristocracy from a peripheral aristocracy. Uh, it doesn't work. It's not, there are people who are at Charlemagne's court are also in regions and they're back and forth and we're distinguishing that geographically, the aristocracy in that way, central periphery just doesn't work. And I think he's absolutely totally correct about that. Um, so I think the 
the the the literature sort of used to um, assume though that 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 distinction mattered and obviously to some extent it does I mean Frankishness matters and Frankia as a recognizable concept is very clearly important in in the sources from this period um, but the the argument used to be that the that's one of the things the Carolingians do they conquer and then they impose Carolingian stuff ways of doing things ideas on the the conquered regions um, and you know that can range from imposing Christianity by force in Saxony to sort of pushing Italian bishops to start acting a little bit more like Carolingian ones, uh, spread of more Carolingian style monasteries, you know, it can be, can, there's a range there of the possibilities. The argument that I tried to make in uh, my book, however, is that at the point that Charlemagne is conquering all these places and trying to figure out how to start ruling them, there is no clear imperial central model to impose. So how he's ruling in Francia at this point is in the process of changing. And since the, the expansion is so fast, the, it's not that there is sort of this one Frankish model that he then imposes everywhere. What it is, is much more um, because he works so much with the diversity that he finds and has a tendency, I've argued, in Francia itself um, to sort of multiply ways of doing things to sort of an overlapping approach rather than sort of one solid way so that he doesn't, you, you don't put too many of your eggs in one basket. There's always multiple ways of doing this. Because of that, there's so little standardization. There is no, there is no central imperial system to impose. And that rather what he's doing is he uses the conquered regions as places where he can sort of try things. And sometimes then the influence goes the other way from those peripheries into the, into the center in a way that the distinction, it doesn't entirely break down, but very largely uh, is not always the most important question to ask. And that's really what I meant by practice of empire. That it's an empire that comes from the practice of attempting to rule. There is not a pre-existing imperial structure or set of expectations that he's imposing in conquered regions. And to that extent, I think a lot of the imperial, the typical understanding of empire, you know, is not what I meant uh, in this. Because um, I think in the Carolingian case, the strategies of ruling come from ruling the whole. It's not imposed from center out. It's the effort to figure out what to do with this massive territory that he accumulated very quickly. And then, frankly, in a certain ways, they don't know what to do with. And so they're, it's, it's very ad hoc. It's very much, oh, well, what do we do now? So that's, that's the argument that I tried I to see. make there. Right, so you're saying there isn't uh, some sort of uniform core uh, with sort of established best practices exactly. that they can just export elsewhere. Right. It, right, so they're kind of making it up both at home and abroad. Right, and those, yeah. those new territories, I think, give a lot of the stimulus to the political experimentation um, because they, they require it, okay. but they also give some freedom to do that. Okay. So it's not that they are sort of the passive recipient of a course of Carolingian imposition, but that they're part of this whole process of figuring out how to rule. Oh, and I, I don't right. mean to say the Carolingian power is not coercive. It absolutely is. Uh, but that the it's it's not, you know, the kind of the way we might, we might think of like the British Empire the and trying to yes. impose their way of doing things. I don't think that's what's happening right. in this period. Well, this is very different from Byzantium in, in this case because yes. it, it has yes, a very well-defined totally core. Yeah. Um, that is enmeshed in a very dense 
institutional grid, mm -hmm. uh, whether you know fiscal, taxation, ecclesiastical, military, and so on. And when they absorb new territories or conquer existing principalities, I, I think that there is a distinction between the new and the old. Mm -hmm. But the new is distinct, institutionally distinct um, insofar as not all of the institutions of the core are mm -hmm. transferred to them, right, right. but only some. Yep. So it's the, like the military is first, mm -hmm. and then taxation, and then right. maybe some civilian institutions, mm -hmm. right. uh, in part yep. the church, depending on where you are. Um, so when they absorb most of the Armenian principalities, they don't just replace the Armenian church, which was anti-Chalcedonian, mm -hmm. with their own. They just kind of try to put their own in there, too, on the side. Yep. Yep. Uh, whereas with Bulgaria, there was no yep. problem because that was already yeah. you know, orthodox by Byzantine lights. But it's a very uniform uh, set um, of institutions that they that they have, and right. uh, they're very old institutions, and so they're very easily to, easy to identify. Yeah, and I yeah. think that that's that is a real, uh, a very distinct difference, and that, that I don't think the Carolingians have a clear set of imperial institutions as such. Um, and I mean, you it, you definitely end up with a patchwork, and that the different conquered regions have very strong regional identities which persist, which yeah. the Carolingians don't try to get rid of. So yeah, so you mentioned that Frankishness matters to them, I and do that think it does, there yeah. are these ethnic. Yeah. So how does ethnic difference inflect these practices of empire? So was was there a difference in the way in which the uh, Charlemagne's agents ruled people because of their ethnicity, or did did this create a more sort of tessellated map of empire? How did it work? So the the I think so Frankishness and its important as a its importance as a as a, an identity and as a political identity I think is a long-standing thing um, and um, my colleague Helmut Reimitz has written a really terrific book about that and about how these ideas about ethnicity um, and its political connotations have been uh, were encoded in his historic historical writing in particular so Frankishness uh, matters a lot um, but there are uh, <laughs> there is also the the people who work most closely with Charlemagne are not always Franks um, and I think that that matters um, so you know Alcuin is maybe a famous example his Anglo-Saxon mm -hmm. advisor who did a lot of uh, work on sort of religious and, and educational issues um, but people like Arne of Salzburg, who's the Archbishop of Salzburg, um, but who, who is, for much of Charlemagne's reign, by far the most important person in Bavaria. Um, and certainly Charlemagne could not have ruled Bavaria the way he did without Arne's mediation. Um, and Arne is, um, uh, was one of those things that surprised me in writing the book when I started sort of pulling some of those threads. He's all over. He's everywhere. Uh, his fingers and everything, from the imperial coronation to how... Misi, who are these sort of royal overseers work, um, to imperial structure, to um, the, the church reform. He's all over the place. How's he identified ethnically? He's a Bavarian. Bavarian. So he's not that, Frank. That's a, that's a clear distinction yes. for them. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Charlemagne um, is, and Charlemagne has a number of very prominent advisors who are not Franks. Um, and I think uh, I've at least argued, and I, other people have picked up on this in different respects, uh, particularly from the cultural aspects, um, is very open to that uh, and definitely works, depends on people who are, who are not Franks. Um, 
and so it becomes interesting in that the the distinction does matter in a range of ways and the sources are aware of somebody's ethnicity um, and in certain respects sometimes in the process of conquest the differences become more pronounced which is something that um, Walter Pohl has done some really interesting work on once once conquered there's been a lot of attention on to um, ideas of sort of Christianity as a way of unifying and that that's more important than the ethnic differentiation in the empire. Um, to, to, to me, I think that that is more obvious in the sources from the reign of Louis the Pious, which I think has a very different understanding of empire. I think so. I think empire as an ideological concept becomes quite important in the course, in the course of the reign of Louis the Pious. I just wouldn't read that back to Charlemagne's reign, um, and that's one of the arguments I think I've made where I've um, differed a little bit in the in the historiography. Um, it's usually argued that those those changes go back to the reign of Charlemagne, and then Lewis continues them. I think Lewis really has a very different understanding of empire from the beginning, period. And I think right. in that context, that sort of smoothing out of ethnic difference becomes really important. In the reign of Charlemagne, I think they sort of live with the tension. Um, they're they're very aware that the empire is is Christian, on the whole, with a little bit of asterisk, um, and it certainly has to. Everyone has to be loyal to Charlemagne. I mean that that emphasis on fidelity is blatantly clear. Um, but to my mind, I don't think they really do tr attempt to uh, get rid of that that difference, um, and. Uh, the Frankish element, to me, in the reign of Charlemagne does remain clear and important. Okay, but you don't have cases where, for example, um, there are sort of mass slaughters that are inflected by ethnicity, right? Like, uh, you so know. You, I mean, you do in the case of conquest, like uh, the Saxons in the case of conquest. No, yeah, no, not so. during not during war. I mean, in, in in more like civilian times and those kinds of situations where no. you have no, 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 okay. no, 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 or or, or yeah, cases no. where they would say. Oh, no, we don't, you know, Saxons or B Bavarians. I'm, I'm just using them for example. Um, no, you can't, you can't serve as, as a provincial governors or, or army commanders or anything like that. Uh, like not at all. No. Okay. No. Um, the, there, there certainly is a preference for Franks, um, but there's, in just about all the conquered regions, I'm trying to think if there's an exception. I don't think there's a, yeah. You, agents, people who work for Charlemagne are both newcomers right. and locals. And, but I mean, that also can cross ethnic boundaries. So for example, a lot of the, the northerners that come into Italy, a fair number of them are Alemanians, which is not, are not, who are not Franks either, but they're northerners. They're, so yeah. they're foreign to Italy, um, but they're just not, they're not Frankish. Um, so no, there's nothing like that. Okay. And I mean, That's, there's, yeah. you, you get things like, um, in some of the, the, the capitularies, the royal laws after the conquest of Italy, you get attention to what happens if you've had a Frank who marries a Lombard and the different legal mm. systems and how you in intersect. But everybody has their own law. and uh, right, So this is crucial. Yeah. There are regional, there are separate regional laws. So there are what we tend to call the Germanic national laws. And... Um, <laughs> that sounds terrible. I know. <laughs> that phrase I, is, yes, just... I know. It's it is terrible. <laughs> and if we had a better term, we would use it. Yes. And we don't. Legays. Let's go with legays. Uh, yeah. Um, 
so the leggings are there. Charlemagne's interested in them. He revises them. Um, he evidently orders compilation of some of them for peoples who didn't have them. Wait, so let's, let's, let's list some of those. So there's Lombard. So Lom- there's, yeah, there's Lombard there's, laws, there's, uh, Bavarian law. Um, the Much of the southern reaches of Carolingian power would use the Lex Romana Visigothorum, which is also known as the Breviary of Alaric. Yes. Which is sort of a... Uh, well, it's originally a Visigothic reworking of the Theodosian Code, but it's the most yeah, common yeah, yeah. form in which Roman law is used in the Carolingian world. Um, and there are a range of there are a range of peoples who might use that. There is a Burgundian law. What that really means in the ninth century is a little tough. Mm. Charlemagne evidently orders the compilation of laws for Thuringians and Saxons. It's not a uniform course, legal and system. And then, of course, there's right. the Salic. The, the Franks themselves have two laws: Salic and Ribuarian. So, no, there's absolutely not. There's, there's definitely, it's a plurality of law. But also, that's just the beginning of it, because, I mean, there's all kinds of church law that's in force. The, the capitularies, which is the royal laws of the Frankish kings, um, I mean, the, these are texts that are debated what they actually mean. But um, I think the, the traditional understanding of them as royal law, in my, my mind, is correct. Um, so the, that applies to everybody. Okay. So... But the idea that there are these these different laws that apply is it's and that everybody has the right to their own law is very clearly articulated in in Carolingian sources. The difficulty is actually seeing that played out in legal cases. Mm. Um, so the the I mean the the, the basic expect, expectation is that we're dealing with a personality of law system rather than territorial, so that the law pertains to the person. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that you are. You should be judged by your law, period. That can get complicated. It can, and the we get something called the professio juris, which is the, you know, somebody in a court case actually saying, I want to be judged by Salic law. But we don't really get that until the very end of the ninth century, and we get it really in Italy. In Italy. And it's hard, it's hard to see that in the earlier period. So what exactly is happening there is a really tough question, and there's a lot of work going on right now about precisely this issue of the plurality of law. But I think that's absolutely, definitely the case. There, There is there is not a single legal system that we are dealing with. Yeah. And there is certainly no effort to suppress regional law. In fact, if anything, there's an effort to encourage it. Yeah, this is, to some degree, considerably different in Byzantium, uh, where the, the dominant law is basically Roman law in, a, in Greek mm-hmm. form. But there are areas where clearly local laws were were allowed to continue to function. Probably the most prominent is southern Italy, uh, mm-hmm. where many contracts are drawn up in the laws of the Longobards, mm-hmm. and that, and that's mentioned in the text because it's right. distinct from yep. the the Roman law that uh, the, the the imperial state uses. And then, yeah, in some territories that are conquered. So, for example, in Bulgaria, I don't think that. But we don't know very much about Bulgarian law uh, before that. But whatever was in use, I, I don't think remained in um, um, that it, it continued to have a legal force. Mm-hmm. In Roman law, what happens is that those things are treated as customs, right. local customs, so right. long as they don't conflict with right. imperial law. Yep. Um, and so you do have references to, oh, they were doing things according to their own custom. But if, if push comes to shove and you end up in court, and it's probably all going to be adjudicated based on Roman law. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, actually, there's a, there's, a, there's a very interesting exception. Uh, well, not an exception, actually. It's, it's, it's an exception that it doesn't prove the rule. It actually ends up being the rule. So um, Jewish women, so 
Jews in the Byzantine Empire mm -hmm. were subject to the... So they were treated as Roman citizens for all purposes except religious purposes. Okay. Where they were subject to their own mm -hmm. like local authorities. And, yep. and Roman law on this matter just calls the, the <laughs> Jewish authorities by Roman terms. Right? Like their magistrates or their presbyters or something like that, right? right? Um, but of course the thing is that... <laughs> that Roman law and Jewish law don't draw the lines in the same way. Right. So for Roman law, marriage is a civil, you know, a contract that mm -hmm. then becomes a religious, you know, agreement, uh, you know, uh, out of the church. Whereas in, in Jewish, you know, custom, this is com completely different. So they don't always mention the same way. So Jewish women at some point figured out that they could get better terms uh, in, uh, for uh, property ownership and disposition from the Roman courts uh -huh. than they would from the rabbis. Right. And they ended up going to the Roman courts to right. assert right. their claims. Sure. Right. And, and they won. And right. they won. Yeah. And, and so in Byzantium, in the only, it's one of the only places in the sort of broader Jewish world in the Middle Ages where the women specifically had these extra rights when it came to property. Yeah. Um, and the rabbis complained about this. <laughs> they right. did not sure. like that. Sure, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. That, so forum shopping, I mean, is yes, it, yes, forum is something, shopping. Is something that, yeah, that yeah. the early medievalists were borrowing from other contexts but, um, and a lot of the legal anthropology, uh, but that we're, we're interested in because there's, there's such a plurality of legal systems that there's, there's constant conflict and negotiation among them. So was it possible in Charlemagne's empire for one to become a Frank and... I'm, like ethnically, right, through some sort of process of cultural change. Right. And I'm interested primarily, not so much in like the Bavarians, but in more of the um, more, you know, uh, how are you putting it, you know, brutally conquered people? Like, was it possible for a Saxon or a Northern Italian Lombard to somehow gain acceptance as a Frank or not that easy? Well, they wouldn't be... I don't think you erase the identity. I don't think they would become Frankish. Um, but I'm not sure it would have mattered in terms of status in society. Ah. So. Right, because you said they had access. Like, if they were right. going to get those kinds of positions anyway, it doesn't right. matter whether they... You can be from that background and become a tremendously important, influential person. Uh there's plenty of, I mean, there's not a hindrance in marriage, for instance, so then you end up with plenty of people who are both. Mm. There are people in the Carol, there are plenty of people in the Carolingian world who we know are important that we can't always figure out what ethnicity they are. Um, so, right. you know, for people who are less well documented, usually we're guessing from a name, but you're just guessing from a name, and right, that's right, not right. always particularly secure. So, you know, Thinking about again, people who work from for Charlemagne, the you know you if you know where they're from, you know what the the ethnicity is, but it just I'm not sure it matters. I so see. you can become I would say maybe I'm not sure you can become Frankish, but you can become the a political equivalent of the of a Frank. So um, again, somebody yeah. like the level of influence of an Arn of Salzburg of an Alcuin. Is is huge, and it doesn't matter that they weren't that they're not Frankish. So absorbing either conquered populations or co-opted elites, local elites, into a Frankish identity was not a 
a prime mechanism, a, a practice of empire here? No. No. I, no, I don't think so. Because ve- that is no, very I, different I don't in Byzantium. Think so. Yeah, it's, again, yes, I mean, it's, it's, You get, you get, for example, I mean, Einhard Charlemagne's biographer saying that, like, within a generation, the Franks and the Saxons became one people, but the fact that they're not, that there's both Franks and Saxons is, I mean, clear well into the Ottonian period who succeed yeah, yeah. the Carolingians. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not the same. So, no, I mean, the, that ethnic difference matters. It's just, it matters, how, how it matters and why it matters can be hard to put your finger on. Because it's not clearly a social hindrance, or it's not a political problem, uh, but it's also not erased. Yeah, yeah. In in Constantinople, there's an expectation. So lots of um, ethnic, you know, ethnic types. They literally call them ethnic types, um, or 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 you know, local minorities or foreign right. people. They they you know can rise through the ranks of the army or yep. or join the the inner cabinet of the emperor and so on. They're a minority. They're not that many, but it can happen. But there is always an expectation that they're going to sort of behave like Romans, adopt Roman law, Roman profile, convert to orthodoxy almost always. Right. So that by the time they're having children, those children are straight, yeah. you know, they're uh, yep. recognizable as Romans and nothing else. And what's interesting is that there are, there are a few times where there are exceptions to this and they're deliberate exceptions, mm-hmm. like the Varangian Guard. Uh-huh, right. Right? Yep. So the whole point of the Varangian Guard right. is, is that it maintains yeah. its ethnic difference yep. to such a degree right. that it can't assimilate to the society and yep. be used by anybody as a, right? right? That it, it's, it's so distinct and foreign that it has to be loyal to the emperor because the emperor is the only person who can sponsor it. Right, uh, right. But, yeah, no, it's, it's a very different situation. There, there's so many interesting cases of, uh, like ethnic assimilation uh, to to Romanists and Byzantium, it's, it's you can you can study them over the generations. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think the argument on the Carolingian side has really been that then uh, that's some when you start getting the 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 emphasis on sort of this Christian empire as a way to get around that because everyone once they're converted can become part of that. Right. Yeah. No but, religion. But it does not right. work in terms of everybody becomes Frankish Frank, now. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, so let's talk about the aristocracy now. So we've we've yeah. we've mentioned a number of issues that you know pertain to its history and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here, I want to say I want to sort of sketch out a, a couple of different models of how we might think of uh, of the uh, respective aristocracies of the mm-hmm. Frankish and Byzantine realms. And they're, and they're quite different models. Um, and and I'm gonna this is gonna sound a bit more like a polarity, though. I understand that it's more of a spectrum, mm-hmm. but just for the purposes of drawing them clearly. Um, so on the one hand, um, and I think that Byzantium is closer to this, um, you would have an aristocracy, what's called an aristocracy of service, that is people who are socially distinguished and actually wealthy precisely because they serve the emperor in some official capacity in some magist- magist- as magistrates in offices they are salaried, they are paid by the state. Um, without that salary, they would be m- not nowhere near as rich. So mm-hmm. we now think that a great deal of the aristocracy's wealth comes from office and not mm-hmm. from their own private lands. Yep. Um, they serve entirely at the pleasure of the ruler. They are under, they are, you know, they have power while they are in office and not when they are not, right? 
So it makes a real difference whether you're holding that office or not. They are rotated in and out of office every few years. Um, they're posted wherever the court sends them. They can be transferred out to another place and so on. Um, and that, and the emperor does not normally have to engage in a kind of internal diplomacy mm -hmm. in order to get things done. Yep. You normally you just kind of order them, right. you know. Yep. Um, on the other hand, so the other extreme, right? We have an aristocracy that, whom you can describe as sort of sort of quasi-autonomous local lords. They have a great deal of land and retainers and followers, and through their own resources, they can be a headache to the monarch. Um, and 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 um, in, 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 when you have a weak king or emperor, that aristocracy can really become almost sort of quasi-autonomous and independent. And and there you have a case where the the, the big the state, the empire, might actually just fragment or disperse into its component parts. Um, and so would I be right to say that the Carolingian form of aristocracy forms falls more toward the latter extreme? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, I mean, no question. Uh, the I do think that, um, and I've tried to argue that there is there is a degree to which people who have official titles in the Carolingian world actually do have. There is a sense of office that there is a sense of uh, responsibility um, and designation from the king that matters. Um, not everyone would agree with me on that. They, there are some Carolingianists who would think that's going too far. Too, that's going that we, too far. It's entirely, entirely local autonomous aristocrats. Okay. Particularly the key, some key the, some of the key work there is, was done by a guy named Jürgen Honig, um, who really argued that uh, official titles are just you know nomenclature on what aristocrats doing what they've always done, and that kings are to the extent that they can the strongest of the kings like Charlemagne. Uh, the, to the extent that he can do anything is just sort of piggyback on these local disputes among aristocrats. I think that goes too far, but certainly we can't go to the, the sort of Byzantine model of salaried agents who owe most of their wealth to uh, to their service. Um, but I, what I think we can do on a Carolingian model is um, this sort of aristocracy of service. Uh, Stuart Airely has written a really, really terrific article and a series of terrific articles about uh, the aristocracy and the service of the state. And really arguing that what the Carolingians managed to do is, in a sense, convince the aristocracy that this service to the Carolingians is part of what it means to be an aristocracy. And that that ethos of service and work for the Carolingians becomes part of aristocratic identity. And to me, I think that's the, that's the way in. So these offices and these titles, I think, do, do mean something. Though I think what they mean, I think part of what Charlemagne is doing is trying to sort of push, particularly with what counts, who are the primary local agents are supposed to do, which is an old title. And there's certainly a degree of sort of um, hereditary claim to that title. Not absolute, but some degree of that. Uh, of count, mm -hmm. you said. Comes. Yeah, comes. Right. Yeah of a sort of expectation of inheritance of that among families and 
Charlemagne can intervene, but most of the time, at least what I've argued, is that he tries to create situations where he doesn't have to intervene in that. Um, so I do, I do think that the official titles matter, but I think that, again, becomes then part of that core political mm-hmm. challenge that Charlemagne's dealing with is getting the aristocracy to work with him because they are far more closer to your second, your second model. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think they do um, often. Um, and then I think, you know, if you really get into the nitty-gritty, you need to start distinguishing kinds of agents. So like these Misi, who are royal overseers, I think are, it, it's different. Than, than counts. I think in both cases, Charlemagne does manage to get some degree of what I would choose to call official service out of that. Um, but I'm I I certainly haven't convinced all of my colleagues of that. That was my argument, but I'm right, not right. everyone would agree with me. Um, y- yeah. So you see, Byzantinus. So Byzantium retains some of those same titles because they go back to the ancient Roman of tradition. Yeah. Um, you know, comes and yep. especially like dukes uh, yeah. or dukes uh, writing. Right. But they're they're used so differently, right? Um, because yeah. these are just offices in the Byzantine state, like you know, undersecretary of yeah. whatever, right? And people just rotate in and out of them, yeah. Um, and it's completely different when you when they're hereditary, right? You right. have a system yep. like that. Um, the uh, anyway, um, I I think that there also no. Um, like these are they don't have private forts they don't have private armies at most you have a small retainer right um and right. i i think that i so i was recently reading a lot of 7th century italian history okay and it was in that context that i i began to see the transition of something like dukes uh-huh from a a position in the roman state right to a local hereditary kind of aristocracy. Yep. I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's where I first saw that happen. But it doesn't happen in the East. Yeah, I, it's, it's um, the, the Carolingian aristocracy unquestionably has their own wealth. They have significantly landed resources. They have their own military followings. Now they don't have fortifications on the whole. Um, there's very little internal fortification in the Carolingian context. Is that a Norman thing? in the west so i mean the 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 old answer used to be it's a vikings right that you start because of the vikings yeah okay yeah yeah um i'm not sure the castle archaeology fully bears that out but i do think that it is generally true that we aren't talking about fortified aristocracies and that in in that sense the carolingians are distinct from what you could see in other times and places um and I think one other thing that the that Carolingianists haven't done that I think um, would be interesting, I, it'll be diff- difficult in the sources, but if we could do it, I think would be profitable, would be to try to understand more about how uh, financially lucrative office holding actually was in exactly. the Carolingian yes. world. And right. it certainly is in some respects, in that there are benefices, which is you know royal land, but that are held by those who are working for the king, as well as their... Um, somebody like a count gets you know a cut of the proceeds of judicial fines which are extensive um, because there is a lot of uh, fines built into the legal system Um, but there hasn't really been a clear effort to sort of quantify that and partly because it's tough given our source base but I think it might be worth a, a really good effort at digging down into some of the local materials to see how much we could actually see how profitable it really was to work through kinks. Yes, I, so. I think you're right. I think that's very important. 
Um, in, in the Byzantine case, we actually do know some of the sums, and mm -hmm. they're pretty large. Yeah. Um, yeah. So large that if you then, you know, so there, there used to be scholars who work on, like, the court system mm -hmm. and the service aristocracy, and a different set of scholars who work on, like, land and agrarian yep. history. Yep. Once they start beginning to compare notes, yeah. we realize right. that, right. wait a minute, those right. sums that they're right. being paid are yeah. large in relation to what you can produce through the land. Uh-huh. And we even have descriptions of some of the ceremonies where the emperor would literally physically give a bag of gold to right. the top right. of right. like emperor yeah. money bags. Right. Here, right. plunk it down yeah. on the table. Right. Here's your salary. Yep. Uh, just to drive home, yep. you know, where it's yep. coming from. Yeah. So for us, yeah, you know, yeah, we yeah. don't have salaries, so that makes it a little more complicated. But, you know, I don't know that we've actually adequately answered the question of how profitable uh, the office perks holding of, was. Of service. Yeah, I mean, there yeah, certainly yeah. are some, but like. Can, no, could no, we actually be a little bit more, you know, quantifiable about that? And I don't know, maybe we can. Okay, so I've got one more yeah. question for you Definitely. about this, the general topic. Um, so does the Carolingian Empire have a capital or only a court? Um, in the second half of Charlemagne's reign, um, yes, it has a capital. Um, and uh, there's been debate about this. Uh, some people look at it as multifocal capitals. Some people really downplay it, um, but I I think the second half of the Charlemagne's reign clearly has a court. Um, the work that I really tried to build on was Janet Nelson, uh, Genty Nelson's work on on Aachen as a place of power. Um, it, Aachen remains the capital uh, for at least much of Louis the Pious's reign, but then of course once you're dealing with multiple kingdoms, there's not one center in quite the same way. So. Um, do the Carolingians have a capital? It depends when. Did Charlemagne have a capital? Second half of his reign, yes, definitely. And I, I really do think Aachen becomes that. It's it's uh, you know Charlemagne leaves it on occasion, but not that often. And it just then you start seeing everything comes to him, and you can refer to the palace as sort of the equivalent of to the king, and, and or to Aachen. You know, just means you're coming to Charlemagne. Like so. Okay. So what's the? Can we guess what's the population of? this capital at the highest point nope not remotely but no um so first of all we know that a lot of aristocrats would have had houses there but oh. they're not there all the time right okay right so they they come and they go but they it's like they go back to whatever their local base is but they're yeah. also have a house in Aachen the the problem with Aachen of course is Charlemagne's chapel which is still standing and is extraordinary building um is I mean the best preserved Carolingian building uh, the what was Charlemagne's palace is sort of under the current town hall um, so there's been a little work on the foundations there so we you know we know the rough outline of the shape of that building there's been a little bit of work in between the space from the, the palace to the the chapel where there was a, a connecting corridor eventually and then the Archaeology of Aachen is just little tiny bits here, there. We really have no, no good sense of what that, that looked like. So um, it, it's a really difficult problem, and I would not want to give you a number. I would just be making it up. Are there references in the sources to, like, the populace of Aachen being engaged in some sort of political action or anything like that? Not specifically of Aachen. So um, there's um, a forthcoming book by um, Shane Bobricki, um, who's currently in Vienna, 
um, about the crowd in the early Middle Ages. Um, okay. And I think Shane's chronology is like four hundred ish to probably about a, a thousand. So he, he certainly looks at the examples of Carolingian crowd. We don't have a terrific sense of a sort of crowd of people at Aachen that you know you could think about like the circus and greens and blues or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We've got nothing. We've got nothing. Nothing like that. Um, the we do have, I guess the we have a famous story in Knocker, who's another biography of Charlemagne, though written significantly later and very anecdotal, and from somebody who really didn't know Charlemagne. So you know tells us much more about his own expectations than about Charlemagne, uh, but about Charlemagne sort of surveying Aachen and have things being built on sort of stilts so that like the king from could see everything. Mm-hmm. It's almost this very strange panopticon-like passage, <laughs> as uh, Stuart Early has noted, um, which suggests there's, you know, a population to surveil, but it's it's phrased much more of him sort of checking on like the aristocrats and yeah, like yeah, a yeah, crowd. So... Um, I, I don't. We don't really have any reason to think of Aachen as particularly large population-wise. I think it does become a political capital in the sense that business surrounding political life goes there. Charlemagne okay. is there. It becomes a sort of central node. Yeah, the, but the, the people are a fundamental part of the political system in Byzantium, and in in the yes. in the yeah right. in in the. Uh, maximum um the high point of empire in like the 11th century or so on it's quarter of a million and then in the 12th century possibly even more right uh and but just sort of maintaining the populace is a big part of the emperor's job i mean Aachen was a a roman site and there was clearly a palace there earlier before charlemagne starts building um but it's a new construction charlemagne builds it really um, to yeah. be his to be his palace, and um, I d- we don't have any sense of this as uh, so, a way okay. in which Constantinople has this long history, right? I mean, that's Aachen is not is not that it becomes symbolically yeah, quite yeah, important, yeah. but I mean, we, there's no reason to think it's large. Okay. So my closing question: uh, You want to recommend yeah. two good books to our listeners? Two good books. Okay. Um, so I think one of the most exciting things that's been published recently for Carolingian political history is uh, Ginji Nelson's new biography of Charlemagne. I've bought King that. I Emperor, haven't read it yet. Emperor. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's great. Uh, it's, um, it really is a biography. And huh. I think what she's able to do in terms of treating uh, this very famous man, but a man who wrote nothing himself, as a subject of biography is remarkable. So for anyone who's interested in how pre-modern politics works and interested in the, those human dynamics and how we do that, I, it's an extraordinary book that oh, she's excellent. able to, to oh, pull right, out right. of that. Um, uh, so, um, and I think the, uh, the payoff of taking Charlemagne's reign as a human life I think is really valuable there. So I think that I'm telling everybody to read that um, and written very accessibly. So I think that's, nice. that's worthy of mm-hmm. broad readership. Um, another book that I think is really worth reading uh, in the broad sort of scope of empire, it's not a book about empire per se, but I, it's, a, it's a very interesting book about politics and how we study it. 
um, is Micah de Jong's The Penitential State about Louis, the reign of Louis the Pious, who very famously voluntarily performed a public penance in A22 in Attigny um, to atone for his sins and those of his father, and then was forced into an imposed penance a decade or so later uh, in the course of a civil war. And Micah really teases apart um, the ways in which penance and um, performing it voluntarily, not voluntarily, can become a political discourse and what this sort of civil war moment meant to the Carolingians and um, the sort of ideas about, about power, about rulership, about empire that get articulated in this moment of crisis. Oh, that sounds interesting. Um, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's I think it's a, it's a book that's really about a very particular moment in the, in the Carolingian uh, period. I, I wouldn't extrapolate uh, necessarily beyond the reign of, of Louis Pius, but the kinds of questions she raises and the way she sort of pulls out what you see in a, in a moment of tremendous stress, I think is fascinating. Yeah, I've been reading Byzantine penitential manuals mm-hmm. recently, yeah. which are in- weird and interesting yep. in yep. all kinds yep. of ways. Yep. Yeah, the Carolingian uh, ones are kind of crazy it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's almost like some sort of diagram where you know you say, well, you ask someone, well, have, did you do this or that, and if it's that, okay, that. Now, right. was it done in right. this way or that right. way? And then it, yeah, in anyway, some of the Carolingian ones, some of the things it, that they seem to think are like a, would be a valid case. It's it's extraordinary. It's how did how did you come right. up with this? How did you come up with it? Yes. Yeah. Though when we're talking about kings and emperors, you know, their crimes are just on a whole other right level. Yes, and, of course. Anyway. Yeah. All right, uh, Jennifer. Thank you very much. This uh, has been a pleasure. Um, nice I to really chat. enjoyed your book. Thank you. And uh, you, you, you helped me to bring the Carolingians into my thinking about empire in some comparative way. You know, they're they're usually left out of that conversation. So if I've gotten them into it, that would be a great result. All right. So, thanks thank for having you. me.